You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have one of my favorite authors, Corey Doctorow, on the show with me today. He has a phenomenal new book. It's called Attack Surface. And if you're a fan of Corey's work and the way that he makes us think about uh, the world around us and the technology that we use and all of that fun stuff, while... just completely submerging us in a fantastic story. And you're going to love this book as well as all of Corey's work. Um, we we talked with Corey a couple of years ago when his book Walk Away came out, and I'm super excited to have you back on the show. Welcome, Corey. Oh, thank you for having me back on. It's a treat to be back. Absolutely. So, um, you know, Corey, um, 2020 has been kind of a weird year. Um, you don't I, say I, <laughs> what what's been going on with you this year and how are you navigating this uh, crazy time? Well, it's obviously a very intense time for for everybody and you know, I I before I get into my litany of all the ways it's been intense for me, I just want to acknowledge that I have it much better than most people. Um, you know, our our daughter is doing distance education, but her school district is reasonably well funded and is handling it pretty gracefully. Um, my wife's job, uh, gave her a pay cut, but didn't furlough her or, or lay her off. And while, um, this isn't an ideal time to be bringing a book out, I did publish four books in 2020 and they've all done pretty well. And so, you know, all of that stuff said it's stressful. It's hard. My daughter broke her arm this week in the Mm. middle of the book launch. Literally I was on a, a book launch event and my wife texted me in the middle of it to say she's broken her wrist. And so I spent uh, yesterday launching my or fulfilling my Kickstarter. I did I did a Kickstarter for the audiobook of this of this book uh, from the hospital while she was getting her cast on. <laughs> it was not <laughs> easy, but you know we're not sick. Um, I have a Canadian passport, and we have a Plan B if the country uh descends into martial law or chaos after november 4th we have you know a, a a car that will take us to the border in vancouver and and get us some modicum of safety that i think most people living in this country afraid of that kind of thing don't have available to them and so you know i think that that most people would not call preparing to flee in the event of martial law uh, a blessing the fact that I have somewhere to go definitely is. Well, sure, sure. The the last time we talked, Corey, I believe that you were based in London. Is that right? I think that's probably right. Yeah, we moved to San Francisco in 2015. Or to, not to San Francisco, I beg your pardon. I moved from San Francisco in 2003. I moved to Los Angeles in, uh, in, in 2015. In between, I lived in London, although I moved to Los Angeles twice during uh, 13 years. <laughs> but I was in London. I went back and forth twice, the first time to to serve as a Fulbright chair at the University of Southern California, and the second time to serve as a writer in residence, at, or artist in residence, rather, at Disney Imagineering. 
So this is our third time here. And this time around, it's it's um, at least semi-permanent. We have green cards this time. And uh, we bought a house and we gave up our, our home in London. So this this feels like a longer term project. I'm, this is uh, it has nothing to do with anything, but I'm I'm really interested to hear as a writer and a science fiction writer, especially um, how does your surroundings uh, affect the way you write? Um, so you you lived in London and, you know, put out several books while living there and have also lived in the States. You're from Canada and, uh, you know, are kind of a, a world traveler. D- does your surroundings affect the kind of writing that you do or or how you write? Well, until this year, I would have said no, but things have changed a little. So I started selling novels while I was doing a startup and traveling a lot. And I had to learn to write um, even when I wasn't in my good place, when I wasn't, you know, in, an o- in my <laughs> office with with a cup of coffee and the right music and oh, yeah. all the other things that, that you need to kind of lure the muse into the room. And then, you know, I, my career really picked up when I was the European director of a nonprofit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation and traveling 28 days a month. I actually got to the point where I stopped plugging in my fridge because it cost me 10 bucks a month to keep my ice cubes frozen. <laughs> and uh, I really, that's when, when I really had to double down on being able to do things like, you know, do my, my, my one page a day while, uh, crouching next to the toilets in an airport lounge plugged into the only electrical outlet between two flights, you know, that, that, or, or literally propping my laptop on an escalator handrail as I rolled up to write the last 50 words of my 250 words for the day. And so I, I became very good at it. And it, it relies on two really important realizations. The first is that while there are uh, days where the work feels good and days when the work feels bad, that um, that uh, really relates much more to things like how much sleep I got the night before, how stressed or anxious I am, than the objective quality. And the other is that um, some days I do write well and some days I do write badly, but the um, but that is a, a completely uncoupled from the feeling of the words as I write them. And so this was a very liberating realization because it meant that the, what we think of as writer's block, which is really not that you can't think of words, but that when you think of words, you think, oh, those aren't very good words and I shouldn't write them down because they're bad, that it, it frees you up to write down the words, even if they feel bad, because you realize that they might be good. And if they're bad, you can <laughs> fix them later. It is a double-edged sword. After about a decade of this, I had a kind of like really uh, terrible thunderbolt from the blue where I realized, well, wait a second. If the days when the writing feels bad, it might be good. Then maybe the days when I feel really good about writing, I'm writing terrible stuff. And, uh, and, and of course that's true. <laughs> and as soon as I confronted <laughs> that, some of the joy of writing kind of leached out, which, you know, it becomes a little anhedonic, you know, a little uh, like uh, not emotionless, but the emotions kind of live in a box where you go, I, those emotions are, are not related to the activity. And obviously having written feels great and, and having people say nice things about your work feels great, but the writing itself remains contentious. Now I said that this is different this year and it's different because in December I started work on a new book called The Lost Cause. That's a post Green New Deal novel uh, set here in Burbank, where I live. And it's about uh, the first generation in a century that doesn't feel fear the future. It's it's in the midst of absolute climate emergency, but 
it's in the midst of a climate emergency that's being confronted head on by people who are taking a real assessment of what can be salvaged, what can't, and what needs to be done to salvage it, and doing things like preparing to spend 300 years relocating every coastal city in the world 20 kilometers inland. And it's about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias who, instead of feeling like they're living in a utopia where we are finally confronting the the crisis and not just sitting there while the house burns around us, they feel like they're living in the worst of all possible worlds. And this is a novel I've been really burning to write, so to speak, for many years. And I sat down to work on it and it's set right here in my neighborhood. And then the lockdown came and all of a sudden having access to the neighborhood and having that access be in some ways enforced, you know, I, I still spend a lot of time on the road when there isn't a global pandemic on. I, one of the reasons we bought this house is I can get from here to a Southwest Airlines flight in at Burbank Airport, like literally from my sofa to my airplane seat in 15 minutes, including clearing security. And so I spent a lot of time on the road before the crisis hit and and being stuck here and and having a big part of our kind of mental health and physical health regimen involving walking around in the neighborhood has made this particular book set in this particular neighborhood a much different experience to a lot of the books that I've written. Uh, many of the books that I've written or, or, or scenes in books that I've written, for example, are set in cities where I live for a long time, but don't live anymore, like San Francisco and Toronto, where I grew up. And, and there it's really about imagined landscapes. And here it's more about remembered ones. It's, it's literally like, what did I see last night that I can put into the book, as opposed to, you know, going through, scouring through my memories of what it was like many years ago and imagining what it might be like today or tomorrow. Um, Corey, there, there's been uh, quite a number of articles written um, over the last 10 years or so, and, uh, and many of them written by you. Um, we, we seem to be fascinated with uh, what some people call process porn, uh, where we, we love to see how other people work and what what some of the gadgets and some of the software and things like that that they use. And you have famously said that you write in a plain text editor um, uh, on a laptop and a, a Lenovo laptop and uh, that, uh, you know, that, that you uh, use just plain text to uh, to to write and, and all of that. Um, and, and that, you know, removing the distraction from your work, um, it has. Has this year been any different with distractions and the things that that vie for your attention as a writer? I wouldn't say so. I mean, I I definitely um the the one thing that I think has crept more into my non-writing life that has an impact on my writing life is um more instant messaging of various kinds, Twitter DMs, texts and so on. I've been pretty rigid about not using those for as long as I could. Uh, and I remain quite a holdout um, because uh, although I have an extremely voluminous correspondence with lots of people, uh, strangers, friends, relatives, I, I um, really cabin when I do that. I do that in moments between other things. I, I try to it's, it's not that I don't multitask. I'm actually a pretty good multitasker despite the story that says that nobody can really multitask. I'm actually pretty good at it. But one of the secrets is that really what I'm doing is not multitasking, but doing things in short bursts and, and, and doing a lot of fast context switching. And the point is, 
to be in control of the context switch, right? To get to a natural breakpoint and then say, actually, you know, I'm kind of beating my head against the wall here. I'm going to just take some pressure off and do a different task for a few minutes and see if that doesn't kind of clear the blockage and let me get back to what I'm working on here. And the problem with instant messages is that they are really about interruption by their definition. And you can see that embedded really deep in the structure of instant messaging. Like one of the things about every instant messaging platform, whether it's Signal or uh, Twitter DMs or Mattermost, which is what we use at the Electronic Frontier Foundation or SMS or Hangouts, is that there's no way to mark a message as unread. And so if you don't answer it now, you literally have to make an, an alarm for yourself or put it on a to-do list to go back and answer it, or the chances are that you will never answer it. And so it is really designed to steal your attention. And the problem is that I have a, a, a daughter who is now semi-independent. She's 12 years old. And so sometimes I'm setting up things with her friend's parents and I, they preferentially use instant messaging. Um, I am using instant messaging to stay on top of stuff that's very urgent related to my wife's job and my job or to some breaking political things or things going on with my family elsewhere in the world. And, and I'm also uh, embedded in political campaigns, activist campaigns, where instant messaging turns out to be the dominant form of uh, building and maintaining coalitions. And this has meant that there's a much higher degree of interruption in my life than I'm uh, historically accustomed to. And I, I don't welcome it. I mean, just, just a uh, uh, mark unread function in the messengers that I used would make such a gigantic difference. Sure. And yet the designers are so uh, committed to just just periodically walking up to you and punching you in the mouth while you're trying to get on with something else. <laughs> and they won't let you hit. They, there's just no snooze button for being punched in the mouth by instant messenger tools. The Novel Factory Online is software for the serious writer. With features like notes that are automatically organized, that means no more drowning in piles of paper, notes, or spending hours organizing digital folder structures. The Novel Factory offers clear, obvious structures for noting down information about plot, characters, locations, and everything else relating to your novel. Innovative features like the roadmap take you from concept to finished novel. The Roadmap is an optional step-by-step -step guide to writing a novel that takes you from the premise to final manuscript and beyond. It draws on tried-and-true, tested theory that lies behind the majority of best-selling novels and blockbuster movies. Access your writing anywhere. The web version of the Novel Factory can be accessed anywhere you have internet. So you can write your novel on the train to work, while walking the dog, or climbing a mountain. Just log in and all your drafts and notes will be at your fingertips. Go to novel-writer.com to see how this powerful software can unleash your creative side. Use code HANK2020 for 20% off. That's the Novel Factory. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, 
to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new, easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. So these kinds of uh, uh, annoyances that then become part of life and, you know, the the fallout of of our integrated way of living uh, and integrated with technology, I mean, um, that has has become sort of a hallmark of your work and, and imagining where the technology that we love and enjoy will ultimately, ultimately play out. And then what, what our role in that is. Um, Sometimes writers will think of a story and uh, write it. And then somewhere along the way, or maybe even at the end, they look back and, and start thinking, oh, now I see themes that emerge in this. And then some writers go into a writing project with themes in mind and the story grows up around those. Um, how do you approach uh, the kinds of stories that you write when you know that there are things that you want to talk about? Um, how do you balance you know, character development and creating characters that we love and we want to root for with things that you want to talk about? You know, I, I mean, my my both my artistic and my political work really revolves around a couple of important themes about technology and empowerment that, you know, and I, I sometimes sum it up with the title of a great uh, law review paper that Michael Weinberger wrote for public knowledge called this will all be so great if we don't screw it up. Right. <laughs> that the 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 the, the um, peril of technology used to control, oppress, surveil manipulate us is only matched by the promise of technology used to set us free of all of those things used to allow us to embark on really the great project of our species, which is figuring out how to work together, how to, how to blend our labor with one another so that we can all sort of knit the sweater without accidentally finding out that someone further down the line has been unraveling it or thinks that they're knitting a scarf, right? right. That, that so much of our, uh, institutions and our struggles are about figuring out how to do the coordinative work without making that coordinative work become the work itself, right? To, to limit the out number of hours of meetings we have to have 
in order to maximize the amount of time we can spend doing the thing we're meeting for. And, you know, there's a kind of uh, there's a, a kind of liberatory effect to the ability of technology to allow us to do ever more ambitious things with less and less, you know, meetings, less and less hierarchy. You know, the, you, we talked about Walkaway last time. One of the underlying premises of Walkaway is what if we could build skyscrapers and space programs the way that we build in operating systems, you know, not without hierarchy and not without a central plan, but with far less hierarchy and central planning, right? With the kind of hierarchy and central planning we used to bring to bear on a really big, you know, bake sale instead of the kind of uh, command and control system that we currently have in, say, the Pentagon. And so, uh, you know, a lot of my work is in service to that and into the themes that fall out of it. Like, for example, Attack Surface is a book about the moral gymnastics that you have to go to go through to be a technologist who's on the side of technology that takes away freedom. Because I think almost universally, the path to being a technologist is the heady and intoxicating feeling that you get when you um, first uh, uh, encounter both computers and networks. I mean, a computer, uh, from a programmer's perspective, is, after all, a thing that does exactly what you tell it to infinitely, if provided you tell it how to do so with sufficient precision and accuracy, and that the uh, recipes that you produce on that computer can be shared with other people as self-executing recipes. It's not like perfecting a brownie recipe and then writing it down in the hopes that other people can reproduce your feet. It's like making a brownie creating machine that you can then reproduce at zero cost and send to every person who wants a brownie in the world instantaneously. And it will produce brownies that are identical to the brownies that the machine produced for you. And that the other piece of it is this, this networked element, the idea that you can find all the people who want brownies or all the people who have whatever other interest or uh, passion or concern that animates you and that reassures you that you're not atomized and isolated, but rather part of a, a group of people who can come together to give each other help, whether that's people who struggle for, uh, with a rare disease or people who uh, embrace a rare Japanese movie genre or people who have rare political beliefs. And some of those are beliefs that I like, like the idea that Black Lives Matter or that uh, gender is not a binary. And some of those political ideas are ideas that I hate, like the idea that we should all dress up like Civil War soldiers and go to Charlottesville and carry tiki torches and chant Jews will not replace us. And and but the, the point being that those are like the two signature motifs of the internet, that the the ability of a machine to do things perfectly and the ability to find communities where that thing that you can do perfectly can be um leveraged up into into something that matters on a on a political or or sociological scale. And for technologists to be awakened to this passion by this self-determination and this ability to send your will around the world and find community, and then to devote their careers to ensuring that no one else enjoys that benefit, embodies a really powerful contradiction. And it's the contradiction that animates the protagonist of, the, of, of Attack Surface. You know, it's the third of the Little Brother books. And the first two books are about someone who's involved in justice struggles using technology, this young man, Marcus Yalo, who's figuring out how to use computers to set him and his friends free, first after the DHS occupies San Francisco following a, a terrorist attack and creates a police state, and, and then as part of a project to leak and hold to account 
the deeds of of uh, powerful people who have been getting away sometimes with literal murder. And and this is a book from the perspective of his nemesis, this woman, Masha Maximo, who spends her career spying on people and disrupting people doing what Marcus is doing. First, she's literally pitted against Marcus, and then she moves to Iraq, where she's a beltway bandit who's who's um, hunting insurgents. And then finally, she just ends up as a straight up mercenary building surveillance tools for dictators in the former Soviet Union who want to crush pro-democracy movements. And it's about her confrontation with with the moral legacy of her work. And that's a thing that is happening in the real world, too. And this is where the activism and the art start to blend. You know, 20,000 Googlers walked off the job last year in protest over many things, but included was uh, uh, Google's complicity in U.S. drone programs, Google's complicity in building uh, censored uh, surveilling search tools for use in China, and Google's uh, workplace uh, uh harassment and the culture of impunity for powerful men who sexually harassed and assaulted their female colleagues. And, you know, as technologists start to wake up to the moral dimension of their work, or rather to confront it, because I think they know that it's there all along, but just like all of us, they're capable of reasoning their way or rationalizing their way one compromise at a time into a position that they ultimately couldn't recognize as something consistent with their values, that, that this, this awakening is something that I wanted to capture in fiction, both because it's an important thing happening in our world today, but also because that kind of story can impact the world. You know, just as the Little Brother novels inspired a generation of technologists to put their uh, careers to work, figuring out how to set people free with technology, I'm hoping that Attack Surface will speak to those technologists and that their, their colleagues who rationalize their way into being on the other side of those technological fights and help them have that moral reckoning early and, and, and confront that legacy before it's too late. Because we really are at a crossroads, right? The pandemic accelerated a world where everything that we did involved technology to a world where everything we do requires it. And deciding what the character of that technology is going to be, liberatory or confiscatory, freeing or controlling, that's, I mean, one of the most salient political battles we have right now. You know, it's not more important than, say, the climate emergency, but God help us if we're going to fight the climate emergency without technology that sets us free. Right. Um, You've said, Corey, that... um... Uh, that no political solution can survive without technological support and no technological solution can endure without political change. Um, Little Brother came out 10 years ago. Is that right? 12. 12. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, it, it, well, well, one, uh, one question that comes uh, uh, from that is, um, are you happy with the way that you envisioned um, the future and and how technology would um, you know, morph and uh, evolve and, and, and all of that. If you could go back and write that, that book again, would you change things? And two, uh, I guess the other side of that is, you know, um, it, it seems like the politics surrounding a technology uh, is, is always lagging and there are always technologists and people in the industries that seem to know way more about a technology than the politicians do. And you wind up with, um, it, a lot of times horrible laws and regulations around the use of certain technologies. And then um, the politicians tend to 
overreact in a lot of cases, and then you get technology that's squashed. And um, how how can we do a better job of of the um, the political uh, involvement and maybe even control of the technologies that we use? Yeah, those are two very closely related questions. I think. Yeah. You know the the. Uh, so let me start by saying that um, science fiction writers don't predict the future. Some of them think they do. They're wrong. Anyone who's ever claimed that they could predict their future was either kidding themselves or kidding you. Uh, And you should be really wary of people who claim that they can predict the future. I mean, not least because what a council of despair it is to say that the future can be predicted, because if the future can be predicted, then what we do doesn't matter. Right. I believe in human agency. I, I don't believe in optimism or pessimism, which are these fatalistic beliefs that no matter what we do, things will be better or they will be worse. And instead, I believe in hope, which is the belief that if you can chart a course, not from here to where you want to be, but from here to a better place, that in that better place, you may find yourself situated so that you can see the next step, a step that was hidden from where you are now. And that in this stepwise fashion, you can ascend a gradient towards a better world. It's much better than, you know, this novelistic idea that you can just plot the the course from A to Z and that it'll have a neat uh, rising curve. And, and it, it's, it's really, you know, a more realistic way of thinking about the world. I, I, I mean, as a novelist, I know that novelists uh, and the way that we think, the way that we simplify the world for fiction is not real. It's a narrative convenience. And we would all do well to not take the lesson from novels that everything has a preordained course that that goes all the way up the arc to a climax and ends with a neat denouement that ties things up in a bow. Um, the but that all said, Little Brother did represent, if not a prediction, then a bet, and it was a bet on three things. The first is that the computer science that underpins our technology would remain relatively static. So we we tend to conflate computer science and computer engineering. Computer engineering is an amazing and fast-moving discipline that is forever figuring out how to compress data even more, how to put more transistors into the same space on a chip, and how to do just really amazing things with, with computation. But the theory that it rests on about what computers are theoretically capable of and what they are not theoretically capable of, that theory has been pretty static since the mid-century, since people like John von Neumann and Alan Turing we're laying down its foundations. And so, you know, the, the idea, for example, that we can make cryptographic ciphers that work, that's pretty solid, right? We, 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 we are pretty sure that the ciphers that we make, the math that we use, can scramble a clear text, a, a, a file, you know, the picture you take when you press the shutter on your pocket distraction rectangle, <laughs> can, can, can scramble that file so thoroughly that if every hydrogen atom in the universe were turned into a computer and it did nothing until the universe cooled off and died, but try to guess what the key was to unscramble that file, that we would run out of the universe, not just a little before we ran out of hydrogen atoms and time, but a long, long time, multiple universes worth of encryption. So we know that encryption works. But what we don't have and what we probably won't have is a means for encrypting files that works perfectly, except when we need it to fail. That stops uh, criminals, spies, stalkers, abusers, bullies, and hackers from breaking into your data. 
but doesn't stop policemen and spies from breaking into your data. We don't know how to make that encryption and we never will. And building encryption that works except when it doesn't means that we will create uh, unquantifiable risk for people who rely on that encryption. And you rely on that encryption in ways that you probably haven't thought about unless you're involved in the field. Like that kind of encryption is how we use um, uh, sign and uh, verify uh, updates to your pacemaker or your car's anti-lock braking system. And we really want it to work, right? We really don't want malicious software updates for your pacemaker. That would be bad for reasons that I hope I don't have to get into. And so <laughs> let's hope not. Yeah. And so that relatively static fact remains static and, and it, it remains true. What also remains true is that because of some underlying theoretical elements of computers, that they are universal, right? A computer can run any program that we can express in, in, in uh, uh, programs and in, uh, in kind of structured logic. Uh, and um, the, uh, the, sorry, I beg your pardon. I just got distracted by a family member here. Um, that, <laughs> that, okay. the, that, that um, because computers have this universal element to them and because the internet has this universal characteristic, you may recall that there was a time we had networks that delivered TV signals and we had networks that delivered phone signals and we had dedicated lines for fax signals. And today we just have one wire. And all of those things that we used to do in the network are um, now uh, uh, subsumed into one wire. You have a single wire that delivers, you know, speech, freedom of assembly, medicine, education, employment, romance, sex, entertainment, uh, and, and civic and political engagement. Uh, the census, you know, sort of the whole package is now coming down that one wire. And because of those two facts, universal computers and universal networks, we continue to see the growth of the salience of computers and network policy in our lives, right? That, that a policy about computers used to only affect the thing on your desktop and maybe the thing in your bank's server room. And now uh, policy about computers might affect your pacemaker, your anti-lock brakes, or how you date, or whether your kid gets an education. And so the, the, the importance of getting the question right continues to mount. Uh, and then finally, our ability to get it right is not getting better. And so that's the, those are the three facts of Little Brother, that computer science is static, computer salience is on the rise, and our ability to get the policy right isn't improving. And that's fundamentally what Little Brother is about. It's, it's a novel about people who use computers to demonstrate the problems of computers, right? Of, of bad computer policy, of bad computer use by authorities. And it, it's not a council of despair. It doesn't say, yeah, you know what? If, if we don't get computers uh, or we can never get computers right, it says that the, the mechanism by which we get computers right is broken and continues to be broken and will continue to be broken unless we have deep structural change. And that's why today people read Little Brother, which has been which was published 12 years ago, but written 14 years ago. And apart wow. from a few outmoded references to, you know, Flickr and the uh, lack of uh, <laughs> widespread social media, uh, not because we didn't have it back then, but because I was I was hoping against hope that Facebook would disappear the way that its uh, predecessors like Friendster had. And I didn't want to didn't want to lathe it into existence. Um, that book remains really 
salient. It, it really speaks to our current situation, but not because of predictions per se, but because of this bet. And as to why, right, the second half of your question, why do we get it right wrong? It's not because Congress doesn't have technologists. It's not because Congress doesn't understand the salience of technology. And it's not because it's impossible to make good policy about technology or technical questions if you don't understand them personally as a policymaker. It's because we have something rotten at the core of our policymaking process, which we could loosely call oligarchy. That as industries have become more concentrated, their ability to, first of all, extract monopoly rents, right? Extra money that they wouldn't get if they had to compete. And second of all, to figure out how to mobilize those monopoly rents to distort our policy outcomes so that they can turn the truth-seeking exercise that is at the core of every policy question, right? What is the, what are the empirical facts about this policy question uh, into an auction where they buy the facts on which the policy is going to be made and it's sold to the highest bidder, that that's what distorts it. And there's a, a, a hero of mine, a guy named David Nutt, who's a psychopharmacologist. And he was briefly the United Kingdom's drug czar. He was in charge of drugs policy. And one of the things that he was asked to do by the parliament was to uh, do a reevaluation of how they scheduled different substances. Right? You, you know, here we have schedule, schedule A, schedule B, schedule C, whether or not it has therapeutic uses, whether it should be banned outright, how dangerous it is, and so on. And not convened a panel of experts. And he said to these experts, um, I want you to rate all of these substances that we schedule based on how harmful they are to the user of the drug, to their family, society. And then I'm going to produce a statistical model that shows which of those drugs always stays either at the top, the bottom, or the middle of the, uh, of the chart, no matter what you prioritize, harm to yourself, harm to your loved ones, harm to society, and which ones move around a lot based on which of those values is more important to us. Because there is no empirical answer to the question, is it more important to protect the user of a drug or society around them or what have you? That's a policy question. And he said to Parliament, your job is going to be to tell me which of those things is more important, because that's a political question. And then I will give you an empirical answer based on your priority about how the drug should be ranked. Now, Nutt's exercise was cut short because he refused to say, to retract a scientific article he wrote, in which he said that cannabis was less harmful than alcohol. And Nutt had been warring with the alcohol industry in the UK. And in the UK, the entire profit margin of the alcohol industry is based on binge drinking, on unhealthy, unsafe drinking. And the alcohol industry acknowledges this, and to stave off regulation, they produce their own anti-binge drinking ads, their own PSAs and in-school programs to teach people not to binge drink. But remember that if people stop binge drinking, they would no longer be profitable. And so those programs don't work very well. And their contention for many years had been that the programs didn't work well because some people are going to binge drink no matter what you do. And David Nutt said, that is a great empirical question to investigate. I'm going to create my own anti-binge drinking curriculum. And he found that students exposed to his curriculum didn't binge drink, and students exposed to the alcohol industry's curriculum did binge drink. And so the alcohol industry had been adverse to him for a long time. They're also major supporters 
of the of the government of both parties in the in the United Kingdom and both the two major parties. And it was against that backdrop that Nutt was fired. So we can see that we can make good empirical policy, right? You you drink the water that comes out of your tap and you're not dead of Jardia or cholera, right? And making water come out of your tap without killing the people who drink it is a hard technical problem. And we don't have any microbiologists in Congress. And chances are there are no microbiologists who are on your city council. And yet we are able to make those policies. And the reason we're able to make those policies is because in some domains, we still have, whoop, beg your pardon, I just kicked my earphone out here. In it's some okay. domains, we, we still have honest policymaking, policymaking that starts with a truth-seeking exercise in which experts that have different views reveal those views to neutral adjudicators who work for the government and recuse themselves where they have conflicts of interest. And it, in which that process then leads to an outcome that is blended with political choices from our elected representatives to produce a policy with a strong evidentiary footing. And we don't get that anymore. And we're getting it in fewer and fewer domains. The 737 MAX fell out of the sky because the FAA unwisely decided that Boeing should self-regulate. The opioid epidemic was kicked off when medical authorities decided to allow the Sackler family, who are now richer than the Rockefellers, to market OxyContin under their company, Purdue Pharma, using fraudulent evidence. They, they relied on this one memo that had been written in the 1980s, uh, a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine by uh, Dr. Jick of Boston University, in which he casually observed that people weren't becoming addicted to opioids at the rate that the literature predicted when he treated them for pain, and that maybe doctors should revisit there, the limits that they put on opioid prescriptions so that patients wouldn't suffer needlessly. And that one five-sentence letter was bootstrapped into an enormous edifice of misleading and outright fraudulent research that kicked off an opioid epidemic that killed more Americans than the Vietnam War. And so, you know, the, the regulatory process is being distorted at every level, including at computers. Now, it's, it's more obvious sometimes with computers because we rely on them in so many ways, you know, that second prediction of mine that, that or, or, or bet of mine that computers will become more uh, salient as time goes on. But it's not sui generis. It's not unique. It is, a, it is an epiphenomenon, a result of market concentration and oligarchy. And that, I think, is, is, is one of the things we really need to address ourselves to. It's also a theme I pick up in the book that, that these people who think that their enemy is just people who don't understand computers or want to abuse them to hold power, they come to realize that their enemy is the process by which smaller and smaller coteries of people hold more and more power and therefore need to take more and more extraordinary measures to keep the people they hold power over from building guillotines on their front lawn. The new book, Attack Surface, is in the same world uh, as Little Brother and Homeland. Do, does a reader need to pick up Little Brother and Homeland? to be able to uh, fall into the story of attack surface. Sorry, say that one more time. So, so the, the attack surface is in the same world as little oh, brother yes, and right, Homeland. Do, do you need the, um, you know, the reference material for the first two books to get into this one? No, this is a standalone novel and it's a standalone novel primarily aimed at adults. Uh, 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 the first two were YA novels. 
it's not aimed at adults in the sense that there's a lot of bathing suit area material. In fact, there was one <laughs> sex scene in this book and I cut it before it was published. And uh, the uh, the thing that makes it a novel for adults is this moral reckoning, right? That that's the thing that most teenagers thankfully don't need to have. I mean, there are moral reckonings when you're a teenager, you know, telling your first lie of consequence is a big deal. Telling your thousandth lie is just banal, but but it's still a very different life as a teenager. You're making the mistakes, not reckoning with them than as an adult. And and as to sex, you know, I, I my, my experience as a nearly 50 year old man is that the amount of time you spend thinking about and indeed having sex uh, actually declines after your teen years for many of us. Uh, it's, um, it, you know, I, I, I remain mystified by the idea that young adult novels wouldn't be, uh, you know, if not primarily about sex, at least have a lot of material about sex in them, given the lives of young adults. So Corey, do you, um, because this is an adult novel, the first two were YA novels. We, we know that the, uh, that the first one was, uh, you know, little brother was published 12 years ago, written 14 years ago. Do you feel like that your reading audience uh is has been growing with you um so that the do you feel like that a lot of the same people that led that read little brother are are coming along with you for attack surface and and um that that the material would have naturally matured well that's certainly the hope right that there is this audience of technologists and and other readers who who found that the first two books really grounded them and gave them a framework for thinking about their relationship to technology. And so I, I wanted to write a story that was about the adult version of that, uh, about the, the, the grown-ups experience of, of doing those things uh, in order to kind of age up with the audience as well. Um, and I'm hoping that this does reach a new audience. There are a lot of people who, for one reason or another, don't, don't want to read young adult fiction but who might find uh, uh, an adult story that tackles the same themes, something that is uh, interesting to them, especially in this time when these themes are, are so timely. Corey, what do you think about your, um, because your reading audience, um, I, I've kind of observed over the years, uh, is kind of all over the spectrum. And I'm sure that there are plenty of people that read your books that don't necessarily come to the same conclusions that you do with regards to politics and, and things like that. Um, how do you how do you balance that? You know, you know that you're writing for a wide audience. You obviously have very um, uh, you feel certain ways about things. Um, but knowing that your books are going to go to a wider audience, uh, do you ever find yourself pulling punches or um, do you just find ways to to say what you want to say and and hope that it resonates with people. Yeah, I mean, really, the the latter. I mean, anything but pulling. Excuse me, anything but pulling punches. Um, you know, I I try to be empathic to people who have different views to mine. I try to understand where they're coming from. Um, but you know, my to the extent that like I'm uh, interested in this and and you know it matters to me. What I want to do is put the argument forward as best as I can, both in fiction and in 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 nonfiction and the political work I do to try and build a bridge across to it. one's views were not the views that they hold today. were not the views that they held, you know, de novo, right? When they, when they, when they first encountered uh, politics in their lives, right? People's ideas change as the result of maturing. Um, yeah. You know, one of the, one of the readers that I have that I'm most excited about is a whistleblower called Edward Snowden, 
And if you know anything about Snowden, you know that he started off as someone who, who is about as politically far from me as you can get. He was gung-ho, multi-generation military family, wanted to join the special forces, ended up in the CIA. You know, and that that is not my background. My parents are uh, <laughs> Canadian immigrant socialists who, uh, you know, when I was um, five years old and they told me I was going to march at my aunt's wedding and asked me if I knew what marching was like, I said, why, of course, and mind carrying a placard and walking up and down shouting, not the church and not the state, women must control their fate. You know, so I, I certainly come <laughs> from a very different background to this. And yet I my position has in some ways moved towards Snowden's in turn, or, or at least Snowden, the Snowden before he became a whistleblower in the sense of, um, being a lot less sanguine about, uh, states amassing power to them, uh, to themselves and, and worry about what happens when that power is accumulated and how it can be redirected. Even if I agree with the, the people wielding it today, what might happen if, the, if their minds change or the people who hold power changes. And, and at the same time, Snowden certainly moved a lot closer to my position. And so, you know, between those, those, that in that, within that change is something magical, right? It's, it's yeah. people being exposed to argument and coming to a conclusion that is different from the conclusion they came to, they, they were in before. A lot of our, um, reasoning, our political reasoning, our moral reasoning is, is what's sometimes disparagingly called tribal. Which is to say, you know, if you support, if you oppose abortion, then you probably also support, I don't know, prayer in schools or gun rights, even though these are not uh, necessarily linked. There's nothing about one that that inextricably ties it to the other. And there are people who've held opposite positions on those issues and still do hold opposite positions on those issues. And I think the the reason that we default to this so-called tribal reasoning is not laziness. It's the natural limitations of human cognition that you cannot develop a good policy on every issue that touches on your life because it requires too much investigation to really be sure that you've got it right. And so you delegate, right? You find people who are right on on the things that really matter to you, and you assume that they're probably right on everything else. You know, you hire a general contractor. And you know a little about plumbing and they do a good job on your toilets and then they start working on your electrics. And you assume that because you, you know enough to check their work on the toilets, that the electrics are probably good, too. And it's a good bet, though not a perfect one. And the idea that you can expose people to reasoning and that you can get them to move their position on ways that are counter tribal, right, that run counter to the that delegated authority, which is a completely natural and reasonable thing to to want to have that delegated authority. Um, that is, uh, for me, one of the most hopeful things in the world, because we have a bunch of issues that have become signifiers of wider polit political ideologies, but that are, in fact, independent of those issues, right? Your um, political leanings have no bearing on whether you can survive uh, 180 days a year in which the city you live in has a wet bulb temperature of 115 degrees Fahrenheit. That is a uh, a completely independent of your politics fact yeah. and figuring out ways that people can um, reconcile that fact within an ideological framework is tough. But, you know, I, uh, in, in some really important ways, I don't care if the reason that you don't want to be boiled in your own pudding, like a Dickens villain uh, is because you 
have faith in the scientific method and in the conclusions of the IPCC, or because you uh, want to make sure that poor people who don't have access to air conditioning don't uh, roast to death, or because you're a biblical dominionist who believes that you have a, a sacred duty to take care of God's earth, so long as we all get to the point where it's not 115 degrees and we're not, uh, we're not dropping dead on the sidewalk, that's a victory condition. Absolutely. The new book is a tech surface. It's out available everywhere now when you're hearing this. Um, Corey, it's always fun to talk to you. You you make me think about things that uh, that that I'm I'm not always comfortable thinking about, but uh, I, I know I'm a better person for it in the end. And uh, the same with your books. Um, we're going to put links to the book in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for people to find it. Um, where can people find you if they want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you're involved with? Probably the easiest thing to do is to go to pluralistic.net. So I, um, for, for 19 years, I, I wrote a daily weblog called Boing Boing. And I left Boing Boing in January and started a solo project. And pluralistic is a, um, it starts as uh, Twitter threads every morning. I write uh, short essays on Twitter as threads, but then they become a web page and a newsletter you can also read it on Mastodon or on Tumblr, so you can get it any way you want. And there is no surveillance, there is no analytics, um, there are no trackers, there are no ads. So it's just it's just ideas that I want to share, and I want to do it in a way that demands the least of you in exchange for your kind attention. Love it. I'll put links to that uh, in the show notes as well. Corey, this it's always fun to talk with you, and uh, I. Uh, I'm a huge fan of your books, and we're going to send everyone to uh, pluralistic.net and uh, to pick up the new book as well. Thank you Very so much good. for Thank taking you. time to come on the show. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. Do you want to get paid to write stories? Do you enjoy collaborating with other talented storytellers? Do you want to work completely remotely and set your own hours? Relay Publishing is looking for writers and editors to work on fiction projects across a range of genres, from thrillers to sci-fi, fantasy, and romance. The Relay process is extremely collaborative, in the same vein as a TV show's writer's room. If you're a story geek, then you'll be on a great team. There are seven ghostwriting positions and ten editing positions currently available please go to www.recruitment.relaypub.com. That's www.recruitment.relaypub.com for more information on how to apply. Join a great storytelling team today. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden. Life is a journey. So is the afterlife. At the end of his life, Terrence McDonald must discover its meaning or he'll be banned from the afterlife forever and his soul will cease to exist. Join Terrence and those who love him on a poignant and unforgettable journey through a life at once wonderful and harrowing. Learn what Terrence learned. See what Terrence sees. By this provocative story's end, readers may even learn a thing or two about themselves see why people are saying things like Derek McFadden writes with an insight you can match 
If you like the works of Mitch Album, I think you'll find What Death Taught Terrence a worthy addition to your library and the reading of it, A Life-Affirming Journey. I found the story immediately immersive and it stuck with me long after I finished. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden on sale now. Invasion Day, the first book in the They Came for Blood series by Scott Moon. David Osage is a dangerous man with a complicated past, but these days he's just trying to keep his head down, driving big rigs. One night he saddles himself with a hitchhiker, a nuisance who's more than she seemed, and that's when everything changes. No one was ready for an alien invasion. Death is raining from the sky and the only questions left is do you run, fight, or submit? For David Osage and his family, answering is as easy as giving the alien invaders the finger. Grab book one, Invasion Day, in the They Came for Blood series, and then follow it up with book two, Resistance Day, and book three, Victory Day. Available at Amazon.com.